Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. Let's talk about Jurgen. <laughs> Jurgen Moltmann. He's perhaps one of uh, the most famous theologians that's actually still alive today. He was born in 1926 in Hamburg, Germany. And he's born, he said, into this, this secular, thoroughly secular family. His hero is Albert Einstein. His hope one day is to go to university to study mathematics. He gets accepted into a program, but before he gets to go in, he's drafted. 1944, the Nazi military in Germany. He's drafted. Well, he's ordered to the, uh, I don't know German, but the Clever Reichswald or something like this. It's this forest, this big forest. And he's kind of on the front line and he surrenders in 1945 to the first British soldier he sees. He surrenders right away. It's in the dark. And so he's taken as a prisoner of war. And for the next three years, he's moved uh, camp to camp. He begins in Belgium, in this camp in Belgium. And there's not really anything to do. It's not like they're making the prisoners of war uh, do work or sort of do anything. They just have them sitting in their camps, sort of thinking. And he says that him and his fellow uh, prisoners, they were tormented by memories and gnawing thoughts of what they had done. And what these Belgians did Right, their captives, they, they took photos that they had procured from different concentration camps and huts around, and they put them up on the walls, or on the walls of their tents, I guess, hanging them up, right, so that the prisoners had to see, this is what your country is doing. This is what you are a part of. So he's confronted with these heinous crimes of his own country, crimes that by being part of Germany's military he too helped commit. He said he lost any sense of hope. Who wouldn't? And that he often wished he would have just died with his comrades instead of being stuck in this camp. He was hopeless. And then there, as a prisoner of war, he's given a copy of the Gospels and the Psalms by a chaplain who makes it into the prisoner of war camp. So he begins reading the Gospels, He's confronted with this God who suffers. A God who suffers in Christ on the cross. A God who makes sense reading the scripture next to this picture of a concentration camp. A God who could be even there. And he feels the presence of Jesus and the reality of the resurrection of what can be done with suffering seeps into his heart. He sees how suffering and hope are not mutually exclusive. And he says of that moment, I didn't find Christ, uh, but Christ found me. Eventually, he gets released, and he returns home to a Germany in ruins. And he thinks, I just have to learn more about this Jesus. Uh, He enrolls to study theology, and 20-some years later, in the late 60s, he ends up at the University of Tübingen, to teach systematic theology, 
where he still to this day is uh, on the faculty <laughs> as emeritus professor of systematic theology. He becomes known all over the world, at least to people who are into theology, so a very minuscule part of all over the world, as the author of Theology of Hope, this book that he writes. And one of the more uh, compelling and, and understandable lines of that book, it's pretty dense, is this. Hope is anticipated joy. Anxiety is anticipated terror. Uh, fairly simple, but I want that to probe us this morning with this question that we can ask ourselves. As we look at Mary, the mother of Jesus, the question is this. Are the moments of anticipation, the moments of anticipation in your life, in my life, those moments where there's a gap between the way things are and the way we'd like them to be or the way Christ promises they will be one day, that gap, that moment of anticipation is that moment of waiting full of joy for you or terror? Is it full of hope or anxiety? Because we all have those moments. Uh, if we want to have any true Christian hope in our life, Christian hope, hope that can not only sustain suffering but actually give meaning to it, it must be infused with joy. Um, this, we, Sam and Shannon, my brother and sister-in-law, read that, that great story of the angel coming to Mary. And the story preceding that is when that same angel, Gabriel, comes to Zechariah and Elizabeth. If you've listened to any Christian nativity stories, you've, you've heard that story as well. But just in case you're not familiar with it, it's the story of this old, priestly, barren couple and they, they longed and hoped for two things. They wanted a Messiah for Israel. They wanted someone to come and save Israel. And they wanted a kid. Right? Well, when Zechariah, this priest, he's in the temple. He's in the temple, not just the outskirts of the temple. He's right in the center, right near the, the holiest of holies. And an angel, the same one, Gabriel, comes and speaks a promise that his wife, Elizabeth, will conceive and that their son... John the Baptist, is going to be a forerunner to the Messiah. So both of their longings, both of their hopes are met in one promise, one glorious way. Well, Zechariah, you know, he's not a fool. He knows he's old, his wife's old. He says, how in the world is this going to be? How can I be certain of this? And so the angel silences him for the next year or so. He goes back home, his wife does conceive, and she stays hidden in, in silence and in obscurity for five months, which we run into in our story. And so in that story preceding ours, hope begins to grow in silence and hiddenness. And then in our story today, Gabriel, that same angel, comes to Mary, and he greets her, saying she's highly favored, that the Lord is with her tells us Mary's greatly troubled, and she takes time to discern the greeting. What does this mean? What kind of greeting is this? And so Mary's first answer is also silence to the response of the inbreaking of God. The angel says, do not be afraid, and he reiterates that Mary's favored by God. Do not be afraid. Every time the angel says this, whether it's to Zechariah 
to Joseph, to Mary. It begins, do not be afraid. Why? Because fear always separates. And love always brings together. It unites. It converges things. And this messenger of God wants to emphasize connection, not separation. Mary, do not be afraid. The nearness, the favor, the love of God, not shame, not fear, not judgment. That's the way God comes to us. Then the angel continues to tell of what's going to happen, right? She'll conceive and bear a son who will be the savior of the world. Mary, in her responses to this angel and in her actions, she shows us three ways to cultivate joy. A posture, a practice, and a promise. Yes, no, and silence. In our agency, there is a yes that must be made to joy. A yes that helps us cultivate a posture of humility. And this text that was read to us is full. It's chocked full of all these images of humility and even just flat out the words of humility. And it can be helpful. I mentioned this story right before us of of Zechariah and Elizabeth. I want to contrast the angel coming to Zechariah with the angel coming to Mary to highlight the humility. So first off, Zechariah is an old priest. He's old. He's respected. He has a career that's respected. Mary is a teenage girl. And then the angel's announcement to Zechariah, it takes place, like I said, in the temple. Right, this is the center of Israelite culture. And our text today takes place in some obscure Galilean village much north of the capital. In Zechariah's encounter with Gabriel, right, it's the center of the Jewish world, the holiest place. It's only a veiled door away from the Shekinah glory, the presence of God's glory. But Gabriel, he travels far to Mary, far away from the Temple Mount in Jerusalem to Nazareth in Galilee, insignificant, pretty despised, unclean place. The announcement in Nazareth, it it reminds us that Mary comes from a humble agrarian culture, agrarian roots, Galilee was not a respected region. It was hardly the expected locale for one sent from God. And then the connection between joy and humility, it it kind of is made even more obvious once Mary travels to see Elizabeth. In our text today, Luke 1, 43 and 44, it reads, And why has this happened to me, that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leaped for joy. This is Elizabeth talking, and this sense of privilege, of favor at being used by God, it finds this fresh expression. Elizabeth knows that God does not owe her such a central role. Yet she's amazed at God's involvement with her. In asking, why me? She understands that she is but a humble beneficiary of God's grace. 
The God who sits in heaven shows concern for this lowly servant. In the midst of all he does in creation, she has been noticed. And she will testify to God's care for her, just as he cares for others. And then there's humility of Mary's response to Gabriel. Verse 38, here am I, the servant of the Lord. Is there any lower place to put oneself? And again, in her song, she says, My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. And then later in that same song, in the the same Magnificat, she says, He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. To say yes to joy, to say like Mary, let it be, is to develop a posture of humility. Humility, right, is when we receive all of life as a gift. All that we have, all that we are, every skill, every taste, every sound, every relationship, even every breath is given. Nothing is deserved. Nothing is earned. We have no inalienable rights just by being born a human. All is given. All is given by God. That's a posture of humility. It's a posture that receives everything as gift. And if you receive everything as gift, that means everything is an occasion for joy. Everything is capable of wonder. And of course, that's not true when we take on the posture of pride, consciously, subconsciously. Pride says we can only receive joy when we have something that others do not. Something that differentiates us as better, as worthy, as unique. And this prideful posture causes us then to lose any ability to truly receive anything as a gift because our identity is built on what we deserve. And if something is deserved, it's not a gift. The only joy we can receive in pride, which is hardly joy at all, is when we receive something rare, something that no one else has. It's only valuable if I have it and you don't. Or joy loses its meaning as a gift we say yes to. And joy... Oh, I lost the page there, friends. What happens then? Joy becomes more about experiences of fun. That's what happens next. Fun, pleasure, happiness, these sorts of things. Now, don't get me wrong. I love fun. I love pleasure. I love happiness. They're fantastic. But fun and pleasure are superficial experiences. They must be repeated over and over again. They're temporal. By their very nature, they're fleeting. And happiness is great as well, right? But it's it's quite fickle. It's dependent on my emotional state and my circumstances. So fun, pleasure, happiness, they become something that I pursue, something that takes my energy, my time, my resources. They take something from me. And when I run out of those things, whether it's money, 
whether it's time, I'm too busy, or any other resources, I'm at a loss of agency. See, happiness, pleasure, and fun, they require something of me that I can run out of and then I'm trapped. I can have no more joy. And this is why true joy always invites our agency. It's something we can always say yes to. You always have the option to say yes to what God has given. You always have agency. And the humble can receive even the mundane as gifts because their identity isn't based in what they deserve. Their identity is hidden with Christ in God. The humble know that they are held in existence by the very love of God. They're not self-made. They are God-made. They know they were once nihilo. They were once nothing. And God has made them something. He has chosen to make them something. And so they themselves are a gift, as is all of life. And every gift, of course, is an occasion for joy. Humility requires trust in who God is. It requires us in our agency to consent to God, as Mary consents, to say, let it be. Amen. Yes. Mary's let it be is a yes to the promptings of the divine in her life. Yes marks a beginning. Yes opens the door of possibility. Yes beckons me forwards. Yes is an expression of faith. To say yes is to let go of the life you wish you had. To receive the life you actually have as a gift. It's a lot harder to actually do that than just to read it on the screen. But I'll say it again. To say yes is to let go of the life you wish you had, to receive the life you actually have as a gift. The humility of joy is the yes to the givenness of all as gift from God. But there's also a no There's a yes, but there's also a no that must be uttered in defense of joy. And that's the second point here. In our agency, there's a no that must be practiced to cultivate joy. There's a no that must be uttered in defiance to despair. I know it's pretty cliche for preachers to quote you too, but... I got it right here. It's pretty good. In 2017, U2 puts out this new album. And this is, of course, in the midst of all this political strife. In in the U.S., we have Trump elected. In the U.K., there's Brexit happening. And, you know, U2's fully aware of what's going on. Even still, there's a song on there that's clearly influenced by the classic joy of Motown. It's a bop, as they say. And in a New York Times article, Bono says, sort of asking in anticipation to the reaction, you're putting out a song about your girlfriend when the world is on fire? And he says, yes, joy is an act of defiance. Joy is an act of defiance to despair. It's a practice of saying no. Now, based on societal norms at the time of our scripture, uh, Mary could be as young as 12 when the angel comes to her, and it's highly unlikely she was older than 20. 
Okay? So always have that in your mind when you're reading her responses. Another cultural side note behind the text, right, that adds to Mary's dilemma is this. It's that old expression, good girls don't. In ancient culture, virginity is this honored state, a badge of self-control and moral faithfulness. So Mary's let it be, her yes to God, includes a defiant no to all else that might be thought of her, from her friends, her family. She would appear to many, obviously, to have conceived a child out of wedlock, right? And her explanation of divine conception is probably not going to be believed by most. It'd be a hard pill to swallow. And so there's a risk involved in her yes to Gabriel. She could lose Joseph. She could be deemed an adulteress and publicly shamed, and perhaps even worse. Mary had a glorious promise given to her, how she gets to play a part in the redemption of the world, how she gets to, what, join God in the renewal of all things. She has this promise given to her. What a great joy. But what if she got found out? by, I don't know, some fundamentalist Jewish group who decides to stone her to death because she's not married and she's pregnant. I mean, what if the risk is too great? Should Mary have simply said no thanks to Gabriel? No thanks to God? I want to ask, after I take a sip of my water... If any of you have ever had a dream or vision or hope to influence the world for good, but when you counted the cost, when you realized the risks involved, you changed your mind, or at least you put it on hold till it may be a little more convenient. Have you ever felt God birthing something creative in you, something generative, a new way of... Uh, uh, of doing things, a more beautiful, true, or just way. You feel it growing, but then you start thinking about the pushback or the ridicule or the pain that might be involved in birthing something new. So you give it up. That right there is a recipe for despair. Despair in your life and others. That's what the scripture calls hope deferred that makes the heart sick, right? Because you know something that could be, something you feel called to, but you let it sort of die. So you feel that heart sickness, that despair. That that breeds resentment, right? What I could have been. That breeds regret. That is the antithesis of joy. And so Mary utters in her life a defiant and resilient no to the despair of compromise. She gives her yes to the voice of God and her no to all the other voices that would seek to take his promise from her. You know, when Mary travels to see Zechariah and Elizabeth in verse 39, again, 12 to 20 year old, single woman here. This is a long, risky journey. It's not like she goes a few houses down or hops on the train to get there. 
This would have been a three-day journey, some 80 to 100 miles from Nazareth where she was. Now, women, and especially young girls in this culture, in this time period, were never supposed to travel alone. But Mary does. In this meeting, it demonstrates Mary's resiliency. It demonstrates her obedience to the voice of God who promises, who says, hey, go see your cousin. She is pregnant as well. No one knows this yet. It's in hiddenness. Go see her. And so she does. She has no sort of facts before her to say, sure, my cousin's pregnant. But she goes. She's defiant to pursue joy, even amidst adversity. The no of Mary means practicing defiance to despair, but it also means a no to counterfeit joys. It means resisting all other sort of promises of joy that are less than. Uh, Again, in Mary's song in the Magnificat, she sings in verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. In Mary's song, there's this reversal of a common understanding of what brings joy. The rich are empty. Willie Jennings, a a theologian at Yale, he doubles down on the idea of joy involving a practice of saying no. He says, similar to Bono, joy is an act of resistance against despair and all of its forces. Joy in that regard is a work that can become a state, that can become a way of life. It's hard to see his face. I had to make it pretty uh, translucent there. But look at that man. Is that not joy? He knows a thing or two about joy. I'd listen to him if I were you. And Jennings asks, why is joy often found amongst the world's suffering? The poor, the lower classes... And he says that for those who are just trying to survive, there's not much energy left to complain. That's one reason, right? And he says in those environments, the work of joy is taken more seriously because it's needed to get through the day. And in more successful climates like parts of America and the West, he says joy making is outsourced to advertisers, marketers, and companies. Commercials tell us what we need to be happy. But in more impoverished places, it's the people's work to create joy. It remains a creative aspect of your own life to create joy. And so you have more of it because it's not counterfeit joy being sold to you. But most of us in this room, we're being sold products and ideas that make promises to give us joy. And sometimes they're pretty obvious, right? Get a bigger TV, get a nicer car, get a better apartment or condo, you'll be happy. Sometimes they're pretty obvious. But other times, they're a little more subtle. If you actually bought all your vegetables organic or from a local CSA, you'd have joy. Or if your skincare regimen Uh, you know, was this or that or that, you would have joy. You'd be happy in all of life. Now, I'm not saying to say no to organic vegetables. I try and buy them when I can. Um, But I am 
asking you and myself to continue saying no to the promise being made that if we buy organic vegetables or the right things, our lives will possess true joy because it's simply not true. Finally, there's a place where yes and no must concede to the empty space of silence. We take on a posture of humility, a yes to life as given, and we practice defiance, a no to all despair and all counterfeit joy. And finally, we wait silently in the promise of a God who is with us. Thomas Merton says, in silence, God ceases to be an object and becomes an experience. God with us. So we end with Mary's first response in verse 29. Mary ponders the angel's greeting. He speaks and she says nothing until he speaks again to break the silence. She takes a moment to think, to contemplate what God might be doing. She discerns what this might mean before she says anything. She notices and pays attention to what God is doing. This is different, again, from Zechariah's response to the angel. Zechariah, we didn't read that text, but he responds asking for certainty. He says, how can I be certain of this to the angel? Zechariah wants certainty, and so he gets silenced by the angel. Because certainty, friends, it ends contemplation. Certainty ends waiting. It ends our need of God. Mystery, on the other hand, invites God in. Mystery always invites God closer in. And it's important to note that mystery, you know, some of us think mystery means it's a lack of knowing. Mystery means you just can't know it. No, mystery is the endless expanse of knowing. God isn't unknowable. He's not unknowable, but God is infinitely knowable. He's too knowable. Our finite minds can never fully and completely contain God because God is infinite. That's mystery. That's contemplation. Certainty is the end of the contemplation of God and thus the end of joy. In the life of faith, there will always be a gap. Again, at the beginning, this gap between the way things are, the way things are meant to be or we'd like them to be, there's always this gap. And in that gap, in that space between, something will grow. Something is being cultivated. We can't help but anticipate something Right? between what is and what will be, we're always thinking of something. And so Jürgen Moltmann's statement from the beginning still rings true. What happens in that gap? Will it be hope, which comes from the anticipation of joy? Or will it be anxiety, which comes from the anticipation of terror? Uh, personally, my wife and I, we've been on this almost two and a half year journey now of, of waiting. And it's been 
both grueling and beautiful. I mean, within the last two years, we've lived in New York, Los Angeles, uh, Iowa City, Chicago, bing-bonging all over the place. And um, in fact, right now, I'm waiting to have my fourth round of interviews for a new job, um, where it's down to me and one other candidate. Oh, the waiting can be terrible, right? Just knowing there's nothing I can do in this moment to change the circumstances. And yet, there's plenty of opportunities for joy. I'm giving countless options, choices to say yes, to say no, and to sit in silence. I can say yes to my life as it actually is right now and see that this life is a gift. I can say no to the temptations of despair, to the subtle illusion that a counterfeit joy will bring me true happiness. I get chances to say no to the lie that more consumption or more entertainment or more alcohol or more sex or more whatever will actually relieve what I'm feeling right now. And I have chances to sit in silence waiting on God. Not that I use all these chances well, I'm just saying, I have the opportunity. So do you, right? And in that silence, in that very real gap between what is and what will be, I can be filled with hope. Or I can be filled with anxiety. Listen to St. Paul in Philippians 4, 4 through 9. You've probably heard these verses many times. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. We don't use that phrase, at hand, very much, but at hand, you can just about touch it. The Lord is here. He's at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the peace, the God of peace, in fact, will be with you. When Paul gives us this seemingly impossible exhortation to rejoice always, that seemingly impossible exhortation to not be anxious, he does so by letting us in on that secret of the mind's role in finding joy. He says to think about all that is good and true and beautiful. To meditate on it to contemplate it. He preaches mindfulness way before it becomes a whole category of apps in the App Store. Headspace owes him royalties. And he promises that the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So if anyone ever tells you, you know, be afraid of meditation, of 
of what can get into your mind when you empty it. Well, Paul promises God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's all good. So Mary, she contemplates the greeting from Gabriel. She discerns between the yes and no of joy, unsure which to utter first. She begins in silence. She begins in waiting. She practices then saying no to every temptation and fear and lie that would rob her of the joy promised to her. And she takes on that posture of humility, uttering yes to the gift of God growing inside her. And it's the gift of God not just for her, but for the redemption of the world. So be encouraged, friends, that God is working in the waiting. The promise is that the peace of God is present with you in Christ. God may seem hidden, but he is not absent. He is inviting you to discern where to say yes, where to say no, that joy may be cultivated, grown in your life. May we too find the joyful space to say yes, no, and even nothing at all. May we become the kind of people who are humble, defiant, and discerning of the voice of God a posture, a practice, and a promise. Let me close by reading again St. Paul's words in Romans chapter 8 in the message. I could have just skipped the sermon and read this. He says it all better anyways. All around us we observe a pregnant creation. The difficult times of pain throughout the world are simply birth pangs. But it's not only around us, it's within us. The Spirit of God is arousing us within. We are also feeling the birth pangs. These sterile and barren bodies of ours are yearning for full deliverance. That is why waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged in the waiting. We, of course, don't see what is enlarging us, but the longer we wait, the larger we become and the more joyful our expectancy. Lord, let it be. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.